0: The following program is sponsored in court.
1: Today on Know the Truth, the start of a brand new series from Philip DeCoursey. Fundamentally,
2: Christianity is about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how all of creation relates to Him.
1: Welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Today we're launching into an exciting new series that Philip has titled Life and Focus. It's easy to find ourselves blurry-eyed with all the demands of our fast-paced, tech-saturated society. But in the study of Philippians, we're being challenged to hit the pause button to get focused on Christ, who is our life. This thought-provoking study gives us practical encouragement for living for Jesus no matter what we face in our day-to-day life. Here's Philip with today's message.
2: The journalist, Ronald Kessler, has written a book about the Secret Service and their protection of the President of the United States. And in the book, he tells us, as we could imagine, that great preparation takes place for the simplest presidential visit. In fact, in the book, he talks about how the Bushes, George W. Bush and his wife, Laura, one night, decided to go and visit some friends at the last minute. Their friends were the Johnsons, and they lived outside Washington, D.C., in Virginia. George Bush had gone to Yale University with Mr. Johnson, and so preparations were made. The Secret Service got to the home ahead of the president and began to make these preparations, which are quite extensive. And they got to the basement of the home, and they turned it into a communications center. There are certain drapes that they put on the windows of the room in which the president and his wife will be, and all this preparation was taking place. In fact, they would scout out the home for the best escape route, or perhaps some safe space in a closet or a particular area in the home, should something happen by way of emergency. And in the book, Ronald Kessler tells of how they get to the Johnsons and they're about to sit down and have dinner with the Bushes and the Secret Service communicates their emergency plan and they have everybody seated at a certain way around the table and the agent tells Ann Johnson and her husband that in the case of an emergency she will be grabbing the president and the two of them will be making a dive into the designated closet. And as she's telling about all these preparations, Ann Johnson turns to the female Secret Service agent and asks, what should everyone else do in the case of an emergency? To which the agent replies, I only have one client, the president. Basically, you're on your own. And I love the story because it communicates for the Secret Service, there's one client. These men and women have one passion, one focus, one job, one goal, one responsibility, the protection and the preservation of the life of the president of the United States and the leader of the free world. In many ways, the life of a secret service agent is a life in focus. It's dangerous. It's a job with great responsibility. But in some ways, it's easy in that you've got one job, one passion, one focus, to protect the president. And I want to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. I want to begin a four-part sermon and series on the book of Philippians, a message I've called Life in Focus. Because this little letter focuses our life. And a life that's in focus is a life focused on Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but this is a letter that's Christocentric in nature. It's all about Jesus. In chapter one, in verses nineteen to twenty-six, Christ is our life. For me to live is Christ. In chapter two, verses five to eleven, Christ is our mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In chapter three, verses twelve to sixteen, Christ is our goal. He's the prize. We forget those things which are behind and we press towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In chapter four, Christ is our strength. Verses 10 through 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is a book chock full of Christ. I like an outline that Norman Geisler has in a survey of the New Testament. He puts it like this. The philosophy of Christian living chapter 1, Christ our life. The pattern of Christian living, chapter 2, Christ our mind. The prize of Christian living, chapter 3, Christ our goal. And the power of Christian living, chapter 4, Christ our strength. That to live is Christ. Are your thoughts patterned after Christ? Are you pressing towards heaven on a rendezvous with the risen Lord Jesus? And whatever circumstance you're in, you're living it victoriously because Christ is making you triumphant by his grace and for his glory. That's a life in focus. Anything else is a life out of focus. So let's come and take a look at this wonderful little letter a letter that's bookended by references to the grace of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 23. And what we're reminded of in this outline by Norman Geisler in my explaining of the series is the fact that Christianity is Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're looking at Christianity. Maybe you profess to be a Christian. I just want to remind you that Christianity is Christ. It's not a set of ideals. It's not a list of commandments. It's not even a doctrine per se. It's a focus on a glorious and distinct person who was God in human form, virgin-born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, conquered death, and rose from the grave three days later, and ascended to heaven. And he wants you to know that he's the life, he's the truth, and he's the only way to the Father. He's a distinct, unique, glorious person. And you have missed the boat. You have misunderstood Christianity if you think that Christianity is anything else other than faith in Jesus Christ and a life rooted in Him lived for His glory. But people make that mistake. They think Christianity is doing good, following commandments. It is those things, but they're the byproduct They're the overspilling of a life that's been changed by faith in Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ coming to us within history. Christianity is our coming to Christ by faith within our own personal history. Christianity is our coming after Christ, having come to Christ, where we live a life that's based on faith in the Son of God. And Christianity is us waiting all our life for Jesus to come back within history. That's what Christianity is. Fundamentally, Christianity is about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how all of creation relates to him. I like what John Stott, the English pastor, says, The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. If he is not who he said he was, if he did not do what he said he did come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity and all else is circumference. Or he says on another occasion, Christianity without Christ is a chest without a treasure, a frame without a portrait, a corpse without a breath. And I hope that we haven't given you the impression or someone else hasn't given you the impression that Christianity is anything other than the outliving of the in-living Christ. Christianity is not a religion of rituals or rules. It's a dynamic, living, personal, eternal relationship with the eternal, living, personal Christ. Every Christian has had a born-again moment. When they have met the living Christ and he has raised them to life in him. That happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He never got over it. And so when he writes this letter to the Philippines, he's just overflowing with a focus on Christ. His life is in focus. Christ. Christ my life. Christ my mind. Christ my goal. Christ my strength. So let's come and look at this passage. Verses 19 to 26. Now, when I want to put the text in its context lest it becomes a pretext for misunderstanding. You'll see in verse 12 that this passage is all about the advancement of the gospel. This is a letter written about AD 62. It's written from Rome. Paul has been imprisoned. In fact, he's been imprisoned for about four years, initially in Israel, in Caesarea, and then he appeals after being kicked around like a political football. He appeals to Caesar, and he gets sent to Rome, and there he is in Acts 28 in Rome under house arrest. And that whole span is about four years. So he's been imprisoned prison for about four years, and he writes to this church. You're wondering how he's doing. And he says, brethren, verse 12, chapter 1, I want you to know that these things which happened to me have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. Can you believe it? I'm here in Rome, and I want you to tell you that some within Caesar's house are coming to faith some within Caesar's secret service, the praetorian guard, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I got here in a way I didn't imagine. God is fulfilling my dreams of reaching right into the heart of the Roman Empire, but he's doing it in an unusual way. He's given me what I want by giving me what I don't want. And that's often the mystery of God's providence. Just think about that. God often gives us what we want, but not in the way we had hoped, but God gives us what we want by giving us what we don't want. But by giving us what we don't want, in its providence, he turns it in the direction of that which we have always desired. Wonderful. All things work together for good, really. And so Paul writes to tell them, hey, the gospel's advancing inside and outside. In fact, he talks about brethren who are now bold to preach the gospel. And then when we pick up here in verse 19, he's talking about the possibility of his own deliverance, returning to the Philippines, helping them progress in faith and in joy. So we're still on the theme of gospel advancement. Whether by life or by death, Paul's going to magnify Christ and the gospel is going to be spread and Jesus is going to be made large. So let's come and look at the text. Three things, if you're taking notes, and many of you do, and that always is an encouragement. The deliverance, the desire, the dilemma. We'll hang our thoughts on those three pegs. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The text begins with this expectation of deliverance from imprisonment. As we have said, Paul has been in some form of Roman imprisonment for four years, but he's got a growing confidence that he's going to come out the other side unscathed. He's going to be able to take his head out of the noose, so to speak. That's his hope. Now, he will be actually released. He's right here, that he will be delivered. And then later on in his life, he'll be rearrested, And during his second imprisonment, he will be put to death. It's AD 62, it's his first imprisonment, and he's got a growing sense within the providence of God that through the prayers of God's people and the provision of the Holy Spirit, he's going to be able to take his head off the chopping block. And I think he has physical deliverance in mind here. Scroll down to verse 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. The deliverance he has in mind is his ability to get back to the Philippines and help them to move forward. He also ties his physical deliverance to the prayers of the saints. Some argue that he's talking in some manner of Further salvation of soul, I don't see that as much in the text because of verse twenty-five, because of the reference to the prayers of God's people. And it's interesting; this word "deliver" is used in Second Timothy four seventeen about a time when Paul was delivered or rescued from the mouth of lions, which was a physical deliverance in itself. So that's the deliverance. Let's look at these two factors that play into Paul's anticipated escape. One, the prayers of God's people, and two, the provision of the Spirit of God. So let's look at the saints of God and the Spirit of God just to understand the text a little bit more. Paul is acknowledging that the prayers of God's people will play a critical and vital role in his deliverance. He acknowledges that within the providence of God, God may well answer their prayer, which is that Paul would return to pastoring and preaching and planting churches. And so Paul acknowledges that. I think I'm going to be delivered through by means of, because of your prayer. The word prayer here means an urgent request to meet a need. And so the Philippians pray. God hears the prayer. And Paul anticipates within the providence of God, God will answer that prayer by means of his deliverance from imprisonment. Prayer changes things. Or to put it more theologically, God changes things in answer to his people's prayers. Because prayer, as one of the Puritans said, is the slender nerve that moves the omnipotent arm of God. It's a wonderful thought. When you and I are alone in our closet or sitting on a seat or snatching a moment at work and we give ourselves to the exercise of talking to God and asking Him for something, we need to see that. It does seem such a simple act. It doesn't seem earth-shattering at the moment you're involved in it, but it is the slender nerve that moves the omnipotent arm of God. Didn't Jeremiah say, ask me and I will answer you? and show you great and mighty things? Didn't James say that the effectual prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much? Prayer accomplishes much. Wasn't it John Wesley said, God does everything by prayer and through prayer and nothing beside prayer? That may be a stretch, but it's close. God accomplishes much through the prayers of his People, he responds. On any given day, we can go to our Father and ask him for something, and our Father in heaven hears our prayer and gives us our daily bread, delivers us from evil, forgives our trespasses. I like what J.C. Ryle said: Nothing seems to be too great, too hard, or too difficult for a prayer to accomplish. It has obtained things that seemed impossible and out of reach. It has won victories over fire, earth, and water. Prayer opened the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock, bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky on Elijah's sacrifice. Prayer turned the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Prayer overthrew the army of Sennacherib. Mary, queen of Scots, rightly said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than the army of 10,000 men. That's why the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And Paul's somehow just conveying that to us. I think in the providence of God, I'm going to be released. This isn't by revelation. I think this is by reflection. This is Paul speaking. I have a growing sense, looking at what's going on, listening to what's going on in the courts, maybe getting some feedback from the Roman soldiers. I think I'm going to get out of here, and I think your prayers are going to be answered. Secondly, you not only have the saints of God, you have the Spirit of God. Another factor in Paul's anticipated deliverance was that the Holy Spirit had sustained him. And perhaps the Holy Spirit had prayed for him. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to intercede for God's people. Look at Romans 8, verse 25 and 26. When we don't know what to pray, when we're not sure what the will of God is, the Spirit of God, who is God, knows the mind of God. He prays perfect prayers. Or as one writer says, he fixes our prayers on the way up. So he takes our prayers, limited in knowledge, weakened by the flesh, and he adds his intercessions to them. When we're done with life, the Spirit of God groans with us. He knows our heart. He knows the mind of God. He knows what's best, and he prays for what's best. Amen. And no doubt that's part of what's going on here. I will be delivered through your prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God had enabled him to serve, endure hardship, and had given him hope. There's a debate among commentators is this the provision of the Holy Spirit himself in that? Is the Holy Spirit the gift? If you look at the NIV, it'll translate it God's provision of the Holy Spirit. Others, like the New King James and others, see it more what the Holy Spirit supplies, his gifts, his provisions. I'm not going to try and separate those two ideas because the one leads to the other. If God gives us the provision of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes with provisions from God. If God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes with gifts from God. Either way, Paul's acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit here to pray for Him and to empower Him. The Holy Spirit has supplied Him, provided for Him. That's why in John fourteen sixteen. John fifteen twenty three, John sixteen seventeen. The Spirit of God is called our helper. What a wonderful thought. God has given us a help. Now, I've never been rich enough to afford a help. Neither have you more than likely. But you and I have a help. It's God himself through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells us strengthening us from within, bringing all the benefits of Christ's saving work to bear upon our lives. He's our helper or our comforter. That's too soft a translation in the King James and it has stayed with us. He's our strengthener. He strengthens us. Don't settle for two-thirds of God. We know about the Father, we know about the Son, but we tend to underestimate or misunderstand the role of Holy Spirit. We fall dangerously into the trap of considering Him as a net and not a hymn, as a force rather than a person. He's not a nomination from God. He's not some kind of force field from God. He's actually God Himself. He's the Spirit of Christ. He's co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Son. That's why Francis Chan would remind us to make sure that he's not the forgotten God. He wrote a book on the Holy Spirit several years ago called The Forgotten God. Implication, don't settle for two-thirds of God. Understand the person and work of the Father, understand the person and work of the Son, and understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God come near to strengthen us, equip us, fill us, gift us, pray for us.
1: What a great start to our new series in the book of Philippians titled Life in Focus. You're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Today's message is called One Passion, Christ Our Life. If you miss any part of the broadcast, listen again online at ktt.org. Every day at Know the Truth, we deliver clear, expository Bible teaching on the radio, the web, and the KTT app. Philip DeCorsi teaches the full counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. And right now, you can get started in our Philippians study or explore a past series. Every message is archived at ktt.org. And if you happen to have a question or prayer request, feel free to reach out to us by phone at 888-644-8811. We hope you're making Christ your passion as you study His Word and learn more about His transforming love and grace. And Philip has selected a book to help you elevate your passion for God. This stimulating resource addresses the common mistake of making God small enough to understand that He's no longer worthy of our worship. Well, pastor and author J.D. Greer resets our perspective in his book, Not God Enough, Why Your Small God Leads to Big Problems. We'll send you this book when you make a generous donation to the ministry of Know the Truth. Ask for the book, Not God Enough, when you call in your donation to 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org or write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250 Anaheim Hills, California 92809. Now if you're new to know the truth, we'd also like to send you an entirely free resource. It's a highly requested message titled, "Why Does God Allow Us to Suffer?" This message also takes a big view of God and a long look at eternity. Ask for this free CD message when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Wishing you a wonderful weekend. Join us next week as we learn to put life in focus.
3: credit cards maxed out? Do you owe more than $10,000? Are you juggling your bills only making minimum payments? Credit card companies are playing a dirty trick on you. They want you to think you must pay it all back and that's simply not true. Credit card companies hate it when we expose their secrets. In fact, there are ways you can become debt-free and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. National Debt Relief offers programs that help you escape overwhelming credit card debt. National Debt Relief has helped tens of thousands of people just like you reduce more than $1 billion of debt. National Debt Relief has earned an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They're also the number one rated debt relief program by top consumer reviews and top 10 reviews. Don't declare bankruptcy or take out a consolidation loan. Settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Call National Debt Relief now at 800-645-1660. 800-645-1660. 800-645-1660